us go. The Majority Report. We're rebranding. We are now called The Majority Report. The Majority Report Report with Sean KB at APN. That's not taken, right? How about the Mapache Hour? We're gonna, it's the Majority Report with a zero, so he can't sue us. Right, yeah. The Mapache Report with Sam Cedar. Our new logo is a, a screeching Mapache. Screeching Mapache. That would be like a that. really good punk band, wouldn't it? Yeah. I was never a Screeching Weasels fan. No, they suck. Yeah, they kind of suck shit. They're like a pop punk band, right? We'd be like the Antifa version of Screeching Weasel that beats them up. Yeah, hell yeah. For saying unwoke things. Anti-weasel action. Uh, Are they unwoke? Are they the original anti-woke, like uh, post-left? Ben Weasel would take to the the forum of maximum rock and roll and spew his unpolitically correct views. Well, damn. We yeah. need to get Brace Belden back on the podcast to discuss mm-hmm. the uh, the the ins and outs of 1990s pop be a punk bad culture. Idea. Yeah, yeah, one of these days. So, how was your month, Sean? Uh, people probably couldn't tell, but we recorded most of last month in advance because I was on the road. Yeah, yeah. We I I personally banged out four podcast episodes in one week. I think that's uh, that's probably the limit. I don't think it's possible to pod any harder than that. Um and. Uh, did anything happen last month? I haven't read the news. I'm sure all good stuff. Well, this is uh, the first time we've sat in a room together for about, what, six weeks or so. Uh, and I'm happy to report that, uh, yeah, not much going on. Yeah, hanging all out. The, the, the springtime has come. It's beautiful out there. You've been uh, across and abroad this beautiful, gorgeous country of ours, mm-hmm. uh, untrammeled by... Um, industry or social strife. So maybe you're more in a position to tell me what's good these days uh, than than I am. Yeah, sure. On uh, on May second, I boarded the Crescent, which, oh. as you know, is the train that takes you from New York to New Orleans. Yeah, I've been about thirty two hours, and uh, yeah, I had a, a USA Rail pass, so I was uh, I took like eight or nine legs all across the country. And uh, on the on the very first leg, you know, enjoying my trip, passing by D.C., typing on my laptop, having a nice time, I notice on Twitter that Roe versus Wade is being overturned. Oh, that thing, yeah. Wow, you missed. And I was not, I did not see that coming. You know, I, I knew that the case was in the works and that probably they would continue to hobble uh, Roe in some way, but I did not expect them to just go for it. And for a split second... I thought, well, maybe if I uh, look around me, my fellow passengers will mm. similarly be looking at their phones in disbelief, mm. like as if this was some kind of unfolding terrorist attack. But right. no, nobody, nobody, nobody was. Yeah, phones. nobody mentioned it. You know, mm. when I got to New Orleans, I was like even hanging out with some lefty people, and I was like, "Are there any protests going on or anything?" And they're like, "No, mm. it's just uh, people are kind of saw it coming and are don't." really have ideas, which is, I'd like to kind of understand how that happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was shocking when it came down. I mean, it's now been about a month or so, right? So uh, maybe everybody's taking a bit of time to internalize what it all means. Um, and the decision hasn't actually come out yet. So It's like, supposed to this month or next month, right? I thought it was supposed to like today. Or, or, oh, uh, really? So it could be this week. Oh, damn. Well, I hope the news doesn't one-up us. 
in the next 24 hours mm-hmm. before this, 12 hours before this episode comes out. I, like you, was really surprised because I, I always had a very cynical reading of the Christian rights um, uh, tactics and strategy on that because I always assumed that it would be bad for them, they realized, in order to actually overturn Roe versus Wade because they get so much fundraising and so many shock troops out there for trying to attack the right to choose. So, yeah, shocked, and um, I think it's it's indicative of of the the great strides over the last forty five years or so that the right has made in terms of trying, in terms of undermining some of the things that we thought were just sort of a, a given at this point in time. Yeah, and it, it, like the the idea of reducing everything to culture war sort of implies that the best they'll be able to do is somewhat you know uh, symbolic uh rollbacks mm-hmm. but with this scenario you see them kind of going for it in a way that a few predicted um and i think it's indicative of the fact that their base really does want some kind of social revolution mm. you know they want this you know either uh they're evangelical true believers or they're some kind of like traditionalist fascist mm-hmm. or, or whatever they're ready to really roll back the clock or move forward to some kind of like entrenched white supremacist patriarchy in some literal way. Either that or a lot of them just love the idea of the libs being owned and being sad in the streets. And I think, I don't know which is the bigger aspect of it. Like, is this a material thing? Is this like the rural bourgeoisie and petty bourgeois trying to cling to some kind of traditional values against the cosmopolitan urbanites? Mm-hmm. Is is there any kind of class thing behind it, or is it just culture war gone psychotic? I mean, the real, like, based Marxist take that I wouldn't agree with, but it but is out there in the ether, is that, you know, as population declines and you need more workers, this is capital pulling out all the stops to ensure that more domestic right. babies are made. But I'm not, I'm not sure it completely boils down to that. I, I mean, that makes sense, but I just don't know what the mechanisms are to go from, like, that reading of... You know, the decline of the first world populations to the Supreme Court. Yeah, it ha- it would have to be a very winding road in order to get there. And I don't, I don't think that things happen that deterministically. I mean, I, I think probably you could do some like cleometrics or something and, and figure out the politics of it. But I think it's more, like you said, I, I feel like um, maybe I and, and I think many other people underestimated the the passion on that uh, on the other side of this issue I mean remember that we're you know for for everything that everybody's taken for granted in terms of uh, the spread of uh, civil rights and of course also of uh, women's rights and various sort of uh, cultural liberal hegemonic views about um, homosexuality, um, sexual orientation, uh, women's rights to, you know, have a job and shit like that and exist outside the household. Uh, this was all stuff, of course, that was won. It was won 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago through the course of struggle. But already by the 1970s, you saw this backlash brewing and it, um, and it started to express itself politically with uh, Ronald Reagan. And the people who are on the other side of the abortion stuff truly, truly believe that it's murder. Uh, they truly, 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 I guess, similar to ways that every time, you know, we see a, um, see a police officer beat or shoot an unarmed black person, uh, they truly 
um, get outraged uh, by the by the idea of a quote unquote unborn life being taken, and so you know I never underestimated how strongly people felt about it, but I did underestimate the right's uh, willingness to overturn precedent in this sort of way. I always thought it was more lip service. The question about uh, whether this is culture war or whatever and what sort of future this is potentially going to bring, I don't think that it's possible for them to completely impose on, on places like New York City or Columbus, Ohio or um, San Francisco or even Austin, Texas, the sort of austere handmaiden's tale-like sort of patriarchal order, uh, anti-global homo, anti-lib, anti-all that stuff, uh, hegemony. I don't think they can hegemonize like the left has been able to, or the liberals anyways. But I, what I do think is going to happen, and I think you've been seeing signs of this for a long time now, is that the federal government, um, due to this political um, strategy, the federal government is more and more, it seems like, going to step away and it's going to become a state's rights, rights issue, as it was before Roe versus Wade. So in terms of the divisions that exist in this country, not just the culture war, but obviously like real politics and electoral politics and actual power in Washington and elsewhere, I think it's just going to split things more and more and more in this country. You truly have, I feel like, um, the, this, this red and blue phenomenon that everybody talks about is now becoming deeply entrenched in culture and also in, in people's socio psychology and shit like that. It's, it's pretty wild. So another thing that I'm wondering about why there isn't more of an outcry, because while, while there are those activists who you know believe that any abortion is murder, the, the right's going much farther than that and trying to, yeah. you know, making noise about banning contraception, about defining life at the moment of fertilization. So, you know, before conception, like stuff that the uh, you know uh, abortion anti-abortion movement hasn't really publicly say, said they wanted mm-hmm. uh, for most of its history, so they're going kind of you know like they're turning the dial pretty far, and uh, weirdly the left or you know even the liberals and just the feminist movement in general, I mean which you know feminist movement is massive, mm-hmm. uh, feminist sentiment is massive in the United States. We saw that after Trump got elected. With the women's marches, which was, you know, millions of women and, and allies in the street, more or less spontaneously, more or less about this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're seeing very little of that. And so my my thinking about this is, I mean, first of all, the people who are talking about doing mutual aid around this, you know, stockpiling abort efficient pills mm-hmm. and donating to funds and, you know, figuring out how to do like Jane Collective type type uh, illegal but safe services. I think that's, you know, basically the best idea I've heard, although yeah. it's not like I, I think what we really need is some kind of like proletarian feminist movement to have a women's general strike to shut down the country. And if that sounds crazy, you know, that is what happened in Poland. Mm-hmm. And it won, I think it won for a matter of years. And then I think it might have lost in some capacity, but it, it, it worked at one point there. Uh, this happens yearly in Argentina uh, and in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been massive a massive feminist movement. So I, something that's been plagued, plagued me the entire trip, like once this news came down, is like, what is it about the United States where really a lot of the, the, uh, the feminism that spread the world in the 60s mm-hmm. emerged from the women's liberation movement, which emerged from SDS? Um, why has that taken on a proletarian character 
in other countries, but not the U.S.? Mm. That is a very interesting and important question. I mean, I think broadly, one thing that we can't underestimate is that winning control of the U.S. state <laughs> is, is like the greatest political and material prize in world history, right? So being able to use this issue, politicians uh, and the capitalists that they represent, being able to use this issue to pole vault themselves into power, um, we can't underestimate how much, um, you know, how attractive of a goal that is. Um, and so, you know, I think cynically, the, the use of this is, is pretty powerful. In terms of uh, the reaction to it, I agree, like, um, that direct action seems like it needs to be a big part of it. Um, but um, in terms of why there, we haven't seen that yet in the face of this decision coming down and we've seen more radical action elsewhere. It seems like, um, it seems like a lot of um, the, the feminist movement in the United States is, is caught in like a middle-class liberal sort of sphere. I mean, I feel like um, maybe cut all that out. I, I, it's <laughs> something I have to think about. No, I don't think we should cut it out. I mean, it doesn't. It obviously doesn't sound good that it's two guys. No, I know. Talking I was about the same this thing too. Um, and I think, and we are. I am working on having an episode about the history of radical feminism to kind of tackle these questions because we don't want to just be two dudes here shitting on feminism. Yeah, no. But I mean, these critiques of feminism—that it's too middle class, or it's too academic, or it's too white—are raised well, by feminists. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think when it's uh, feminism is critiqued as not intersectional or or white feminist or something that's the question that it's getting at it's, i mean it's getting at specific questions i think at its heart it's saying why radical feminism and women's liberation which emerged from sds like this largely middle class student radical movement why did it never penetrate to the working class to black women to non-white women in general why did it stay kind of culturally in that milieu in the United States? I'm sure there's a lot of answers you could give that critiques feminism specific, but I think it's really that that's the case of the left in general in the mm -hmm. U.S. So mm -hmm. I think that the failures of, of feminism to like rise to this occasion are the failures of, uh, you know, of, of all of us. Yeah. And I think a, a more general um, reflection on how impoverished politics is in this country, because, you know, what, all the discourses that dominate politics, that dominate the culture war, um, these are all typically middle class uh, and, you know, on, on both sides. And our democracy works for the middle class. Uh, there is a series of formal rights that were thrown up, you know, a couple hundred years ago or so. And I think one of the reasons why liberal white feminism was able to um, triumph in a lot of these issues was because it was about making real these formal rights, civil rights that already exist within our political structure. But our political, our entire system, uh, political system is based on protecting private property and ensuring that there's a ruling class that will be able to continue to employ people uh, and make money extracting from the environment and extracting from workers. So like there's something about the victories of say 50 years ago or so that can gel well, can match well uh, in the same way that like gay marriage can match well with the political structure of the United States because we have this conception of formal natu national, uh, natural rights mm -hmm. that could be called upon in, in particular issues. But then when you're talking about 
class rights or when you're talking about proletarian feminism, you're talking about um, collective action as a class, that's where America is almost impossible to break through. Mm. That's where, you know, it reaches the limits of what's possible in this system. And as, you know, we see with the, the abortion stuff, you know, as um, the the pendulum has, has swung the other way in terms of politics in this country and you have an increasingly um, rabid, um, you know, anti-woman uh, anti-black, um, anti-federal government right wing in this country. Um, it seems like it's 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 an exhaustion of an entire decades-long struggle that hasn't been able to find its feet since those formal rights were made somewhat real. You know, in the 1970s. Yeah, and I should also uh, add that uh, leading up to the decision of Roe versus Wade was a pretty major concerted effort by the radical feminists and the people inspired by them. I'll just read a little bit from Alice Eccles' Daring to be Bad, which is a a history of radical feminism. In the early 70s, radical feminism seemed to be flourishing. Certainly, the women's liberation movement was having an enormous impact on the nation. In July 1970, New York State liberalized its abortion law, making it the most progressive in the country. Three years later, in Roe v. Wade, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that state laws forbidding abortion violated the constitutional right to privacy. In August 1970, the House of Representatives, after only one hour of debate, passed the Equal Rights Amendment. It was subsequently passed by Congress in March of 1972, and on August 1970, the 50th anniversary of women's suffrage, feminists staged the largest demonstration for female equality in American history. The women's strike for equality drew between 35,000 and 50,000 women in New York City alone. Talk of women's liberation, or more often women's lib, was everywhere. There is an explosion of radical feminist literature, both above ground and underground. Radical feminist groups and projects cropped up everywhere, not only in major urban centers. But the, um, the, uh, where this is all going in, in Alice Eccles' book is saying that um, the, these radical ideas, these uh, ideas that came out of largely national liberation struggles um, and then adopted to this idea of women's liberation, which is where women's liberation comes from. Mm-hmm. It's saying like... Women are colonized people, too. Women are like a colonized sex class or sex caste. Transition to this cultural area mm. where the question of women's equality just came down, came down to how women personally lived and how freely they could personally move throughout society. And abortion being like the major victory there, the major victory that they were calling for and, and pushed for with direct action in um, really spectacular ways and, and move the needle. But yeah, I think uh, in a lot of ways we, we've dead-ended with these cultural solutions. No, for sure. And, um, you know, again, the, the cultural is also uh, class as well, right? Because the way that you can break down uh, generally the right and the, the, the liberals and the conservatives in this country, uh, by and large, it's, it's about, um, you know, what geographic area they live in, uh, that people live in, and what sectors of uh, capitalist life they're tied into. And increasingly, too, I think, on the right wing, it's people who have um, a creed, people who have a, um, a strongly held belief in church. And while churches, Christian churches declined, you know, in this country, and will, it seems like it will continue to do so, the, you know, 30, 40% of people who go to church every week find real community and real purpose in those, uh, I think, unlike a lot of secular people do. You know, and I feel like they make very good shock troops for a vision of this country that excludes so many of the rights that we're talking about. 
And yeah. I, I'm not sure what the does does the liberal left have something similar. I mean, it doesn't seem like it maybe does much anymore. Nah, it seems like the liberals are pretty worn out as a force where the right just, you know, like a bully, you know, uh, smells that weakness and just yeah. gets stronger and stronger and just keeps beating. Uh, by the year, by the year, you see it. I mean, you see shit that in 2016 seemed totally fucking wingnut. You see shit that uh, under Bush, you know, uh, uh, the second Bush that seemed totally wingnut is now, of course, in the mainstream of American politics. Um it's it's culture war, but it's also there's there's also I think a strong class component as the sort of liberal middle class center kind of exhausts itself and, and and goes away. You're caught with like a different sort of middle class movement, a more proprietarian, petty bourgeois type movement that the only way they can see to defend um, their communities as they see it uh, is in in order to attack you know these globalizing forces that they see and. Yeah. And yeah, speaking of the middle class and petty bourgeois, that, that transitions nicely to the next political issue that I was sort of keeping stock of uh, yeah. throughout my trip, which is uh, homelessness. So, oh, you know, okay. after New Orleans, I moved on to Tucson, had a, had a couple nice days hiking and biking around Tucson. Very beautiful place, uh, except during the day. During the day, <laughs> it's hell. Even and, in Mar- and, uh, May? Yeah, it was, it was already getting too hot. I didn't think it would be, but it was uh, too hot in May. And then I went on to Los Angeles, and it seems like the issue in Los Angeles these days, I mean, for quite a while now, but increasingly so, is the question of homelessness and and policy to deal with homelessness. Um, And I was staying in Echo Park. You know, Mm -hmm. I did a a reading at Stories Books with with Anna Merlin. And, uh, you know, everywhere are these signs about this uh, fence that they built around Echo Park. And they, um, when they erected this fence, they kicked out this uh, homeless camp that was becoming really well built and you know uh, like pretty infrastructural to the point where they had twenty four hour access to the park bathrooms. They had built a garden. You know they had like tight connections with people around. Uh, you know neighbors around them. And kicking them out was um, was something that people had hoped to prevent for a long time. Homeless advocates had hoped to prevent for a long time. And, but property um, developers and politicians have been hoping to do for a while, presumably. Yeah, like, a, you know, local, you know, improvement, business improvement, you know, uh, local homeowners. Yeah, yeah which, you're, which is uh, um, often a, an awkward situation because a lot of people that live around there are Latino. Mm-hmm. And so you, you get the, these ugly scenarios where, like, Latino homeowners or even, even not homeowners but just residents are kind of, like, facing off against white activists, so that's not the full story, but that's, uh, you know, how a lot of people read the situation. And so now there's this fence up, and, like, now the, the activism is kind of about this this fence. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the homelessness issue is was also a big issue in, in Portland, in uh, Seattle, and, and in Minneapolis. And in all of these places, there are pretty sizable increases in homelessness. Someone told me in Portland there's a 30% increase in homeless. Wow homelessness since the pandemic and to me the obvious cause of this is rising rents um all sorts of job loss during the lockdown um and so it's not like all of these people were evicted necessarily but there's always a certain strata on the the lower rungs of the working class or like you know just struggling to, to stay afloat who get kicked down when there's that kind of increase in price and um 
you know, with all the talk of like the fence and like, you know, uh, how we can treat homelessness, homeless people better. Um, there's equally much less talk about rents, about controlling mm-hmm. rents in a serious way. Obviously, there's some good legislation in New York about just cause eviction and there's talk about rent control. But I mean, that's really the solution to this problem that's kind of unthinkable within capitalism. So the question just be becomes like sweeping these people around and how much should we sweep them around? Right. And like, should we give them a lot and tiny homes or should we just keep pushing them around until they're like sicker and crazier and sadder? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, the in in situations like this, it's it's easy to throw up uh, pie in the sky solutions like I don't know rent control or building uh, public housing or something like that. But I've been uh, pretty black pilled, and I think a lot of people have on um, you know the federal government, state governments, or even local governments coming up with lasting solutions to this entire thing. I mean, it's like the the gun violence that we're seeing. Um, it, it's like um, it, there's just these waves of disaster uh, and these waves of immiseration and, and waves of violence that just seem to crash over the United States all the time. Things seem to get progressively worse. And, you know, whereas in the 19, you know, 50s or so, you could imagine some real serious political intervention, you know, sections of the ruling class taking seriously this social issue, putting money and resources behind fixing it. Now it seems like any local solution that exists is, as you said, moving the problem around. And does anybody believe, do you believe that there, there'll, there'll be a federal solution to this stuff? Biden, we were reminded, is, is the new FDR. You know, remember <laughs> all that rhetoric talking about how Bernie, uh, how Biden has made Ber- uh, the Bernie Sanders uh, run um, real uh, by all the measures and stimulus that he's putting in. It's just, it's so it's so maddening and saddening to live in this country sometimes uh, because you, you see all the millions of people out there who, um, who have nothing, who are living on the margins and on the edge of society. You see this crazy abstraction of the market that's just running people over, uh, people being kicked out of their homes, even people who are still in their homes, of course, facing 30, 40% rent rises with a, with a lease, uh, home, home prices up at historical levels. And our politicians, our ruling class has abrogated all responsibility for that. You know, maybe with, maybe they cluck and maybe they say, Oh, you know, uh, we're, we're going to, what did Mayor Adams do? He, he kicked at all of the, um, the homeless. He did, uh, sweeps off of the subway. This might've happened while you were away. Uh, sweeps getting, having the cops come and throw all the homeless off the subways. And then he promised that there'd be more funding for the shitty shelters that people don't want to go to because they're filled with violence. And also there's been a pandemic and people don't want to get sick and go there. And also, you know, they're out on the street for oftentimes times you know uh mental health issues or, or they whatever. don't want to go to a, a shelter in a place that's really far from where they work where yeah. they where they their friends live you know they don't want to they, they like, don't want to feel some, these people are not just either. sitting on a bench all day drinking like you no, know i know and, um, and and then and and he promises more money for the shelters that a lot of people already don't want to go to um but that money of course isn't arriving you know, right. there's no lasting solution to this except what is ultimately a carceral or an aesthetic solution to it, which is just moving people elsewhere. Yeah, there was um, an article in uh, the New Republic recently. Once, so what are we left? While you looked that up, what are we left waiting for? I mean, I'm 
think I'm going to have to start looking for an apartment soon. And all I can hope for is that the, uh, the economy goes bust, that there's a great <laughs> recession or a great depression so that yeah. I can afford an apartment so to go into. So start squatting. So, no, no. So just <laughs> so I could pay less than $3,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. Oh, yeah. We should say, by the way, we, uh, we lost our rent strike. Lost so, the rent strike, um, yeah. We have to pay all that money back that we've been saving or for a while. Or just walk so. away, as I think we're probably doing. We're just going to say yeah. goodbye. Um, anyway, uh, okay. So one thing I want, one like positive thing I can say about the the homeless crisis, or you know the you know uh, solution to it, perhaps, is that a lot of what I've seen in the trip is a lot of the mutual aid groups um, are that you know started during the pandemic are reorienting towards homelessness. And towards uh, not just, you know, supplies for homeless people, but um, uh, meaningful solidarity in other ways mm. and like developing some interclass politics between the, the types of people who do mutual aid and the types of people who, who find themselves homeless. Uh, and one really nice example of that, and I found out about this from actually a listener of the show who came out in, uh, to my talk in Minneapolis, is that. So in Minneapolis, there's this really big camp, and um, the, the city is trying to clear it. And I, I think actually in the last couple of weeks, they, they did clear it. But it, it took them a lot longer to do it because they are sending city workers to clear these camps and not police. It's part of like the kind of, not defunding, but like the sort of rollback of like what police responsibility right, in Minneapolis. Right. Yeah. And so activists in solidarity with homeless people, possibly the homeless people themselves, I don't know who did it, put out a statement saying, if you sweep, we strike. Basically saying, like, we're going to fight back against clearing out this homeless camp. And that was enough to really scare the city because it's one thing to say, we're going to fight an eviction by marshals or by the police, mm. but to say, we're going we're gonna to fight eviction by, by sanitation workers, mm. um, it, you know, now you're putting city employees at, at harm's way. And so the, the city kind of responded to this by saying, um, oh, these are like terrorists now. You know, you're, oh. you're now like threatening the city workers and stuff. You thought the war on terror was over. It's just come <laughs> home. But basically, they would they would go to the camp um, early in the morning and, and and serve breakfast there because that's when they thought the sweeps were going to come. And one morning they they set up a bowling. So that was a, a joke about the you sweep we strike thing. Like this oh, is what yeah. we meant by the bowling. So that was kind of like a funny action. But I've seen you know in New York, Washington Square Park mutual aid. Um, has oriented towards homelessness in a really major way, uh, Brooklyn eviction defense as well. And then, yeah, other mutual aid groups that I encountered in my trip are doing this as well. And I think that's a really positive thing because homelessness is in, in one way, this kind of threat that hangs over all of us to remind you that this could happen to you if yeah. you don't pay rent, if you yeah. don't work. Right. Um, and so it's, it's good to, uh, you know, build some affinity with people and not just see them as like these uh, these people who uh, uh, you know through their own um, laziness or through their own like uh, uh, capriciousness ended up on the street that these are real people with real stories and they're not so different than us. I think that's a really positive thing. The there but by the grace of God go I type situation. Exactly. I think for a lot of uh, listeners and even ourselves too that possibility always looms on the horizon. Um, I, I'm glad to hear people are doing good work out there. Along those lines, the other uh, thing I wanted to talk about that I've mentioned a lot is the, you know, you, you touched on is the rise in crime, the rise in violent crime. And um, that's a real thing. You know, obviously some police statistics are really manufactured to, to make it sound worse, but it does seem to be real in some places. 
and it's not higher than it was in the 80s or mm-hmm. probably even the 90s. But, uh, you know, it's if you start hearing gunshots in your neighborhood and you haven't heard it for 10, 15, 20 years, that's very concerning. For sure. And um, the but what I heard about even more than that, I heard about this all the time everywhere, is catalytic converter thefts. <laughs> what? And I don't even know what a catalytic converter is because I ride <laughs> a bike. It converts the catalytics. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's part of the Cadillac. That converts it from uh-huh. a Buick. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know cars, man. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't even have one for 15 years. The only reason I had to get one again is because of my damn union jurisdiction is so big. Sometimes I got to go out to Long Island and stuff like that. So a catalytic converter. We're going to solve the mystery of what that is. But tell us about these thefts. So I don't. You know, I've only heard about it. But apparently, there's this thing under the car, the catalytic converter. And uh, thieves are in the dead of night going under there and taking it off. Oh. Um, and because uh, I guess it's accessible, it's, selling it. It's accessible, like um, it's not. You don't have to open the hood for it. I suppose. I guess, and, I guess so. So it's like the old car radio thing from the eighties. I've only heard about it once or twice in New York, but it seems to be incredibly widespread elsewhere, and it really fucks people over. Hold on, hold on. Just just wait five minutes. I'm going to run out and check my catalytic converter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> put a lock on there. So now yeah. Tape it down or something. Some shit, yeah. Uh, put a little $20 bill on it. Say, please don't <laughs> steal please me. Please don't steal this. Because How much could somebody be getting for a, 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 a used catalytic converter? Well, that's what everyone says. It's like how like you... Get, get very little money from it, but it costs so much. So people are really, really mad about this. And I think that uh, President Joe Brandon needs to <laughs> go on TV, like primetime TV, yeah. and say, like, you know, give like a law and order speech. Hands about, off the yeah, catalytic about converters. About converters. Like, yeah. if you steal a catalytic converter, we will put you on trial. And yeah, uh, yeah, like, yeah. I don't think he should actually do that. No, like a three strikes <laughs> policy. You steal one catalytic right. converter, you're going to get a massive fine in community service. You do two, it's going to be worse. You do three, that's a life sentence, man. You're going to catalytic court, you're going to end up getting put in the hole. Rest of your life, you can think about what you've done. This is what Trump was so good at. Like, he kind of understood what his base was angry about and just said he was going to do something. And uh, then they thought it was already done. So Biden yeah. should give a speech like death penalty for catalytic converters. Totally, yeah. Thieves. And uh, that might be a winning strategy for the it, Democrats. It could be. Because people are really pissed off about it. Yeah, and now I'm nervous about it, to be quite honest with you. But as far as I can tell, this rise in crime, uh, to the extent that it's real, which it does seem to be, it comes from both, you know, the, the economic repercussions of the pandemic, but also it seems like there's a nationwide police slowdown. Mm, like it's mm-hmm. certainly been going on in New York. We know that. And it seems like it's to some extent going on everywhere else because it used to be the police were a little bit more emboldened to do their jobs or like empowered to do their jobs. And now they feel like if they do the wrong thing, they're going to go on camera. So they're just, you know, they're playing a little bit more, a few more hours of Candy Crush than they used to yeah, play. Yeah, sure, sure. Re- responding to calls a lot less. Um, Did you see the thing uh, there? It was out yesterday where the cops just watched some guy drown and didn't do anything. I someone yeah someone told me I didn't watch the video but I read the story and it's terrible right some kid it was like a a fake domestic violence call and they you know stopped this kid and he got really scared so he jumped over the fence into a lake turns he turns out he couldn't swim that well so the cops were basically like come back here he's like no and they're like come back here he's like I'm drowning and they're like no just come back and he's like please save me I'm drowning and his girlfriend was crying and like please and the cops like I'm not jumping into the water and then the guy went under the water and died 
Yeah, someone said that he, they didn't want to get their gun wet by jumping into the water. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, and then that on top of the Evaldi tragedy right. where that psycho went in and murdered all those children and the, and the cops stood outside or, or went in and got their own kids. So, yeah, there's this, this, you know, after Uvalde, there's all this discourse like, oh, you think these cops are heroes? They dress like heroes. And look, when it's their chance to be a hero, they don't do anything. Yeah. And this is basically what the cops have been saying about themselves for a long time. It's like, well, you know... We, we think that we're heroes, and you said we were heroes for a long time, and then suddenly in 2020, you all said that we were racist murderers. So, like, right. okay, maybe we won't be heroes anymore. Yeah. And I think that that attitude is really widespread in law enforcement, and not only that, but a lot of, a lot of uh, police departments are having trouble hiring. So, like, instead of defunding the police, what's really going on is no one wants to be a cop. And in a lot of places, there's huge bonuses now to be a cop. Yeah, like you yeah. can make more money than ever just for going to training, um, and they can't find the cops to do it. Uh, like in Minneapolis, they told me uh, they normally have 800 in Minneapolis police, and now they're down to 500, and a lot of those are desk jobs. Mm. Uh, Portland is a similar story, you know. Uh, so some places, there's just not a lot of cops around. I, I think you, you isolate a couple things because, you know, the great crime wave of the, of the 70s, 80s, and 90s was a confluence of events. Everything from, like, lead paint to the crack epidemic to, like, the smashing up of the social movements, you know, that had risen up in the 1970s, um, combined with, like, a generational thing with more young people. There's a whole series of reasons. I think you're right about the police pullback. I think that's very, very real. I think you're right about the economic aspect for sure. Um, but I think that there's uh, something deeper, something more social happening. And I, you see this in not just crime, not just shootings. Um, you also see this in things like uh, pedestrian deaths um, you know, by, on, on the roadways, uh, car accidents, uh, drunken driving. All sorts of things like this where people are driving faster, they're getting into more road rage incidents, there's more like casual violence happening here and there all over the country. Yeah, I've heard about that. And it's and so what that points to, and without any social scientific shit, we can only surmise, but I feel like the threads of this society are fraying. I mean, I think they were already frayed in, in 2020, but I feel like there was like a massive psychosocial shift that happened. Yeah. Uh, and we the vibe feel shift like, is real. Yeah, the vibe shift is real. Like people are like, oh, well, the you know, lockdowns are largely over. The vaccine's out now. You know, everyone, the, the economy is booming. You know, we've got all these jobs, so many that there's even a great resignation. We've got homeowners, I mean, so much more money. But under the surface of that, um, under the surface of that, I feel like a lot of the sort of tacit social contracts sort of day in and day out um, sort of interactions between people on a day-to-day basis, I feel like have been severed. I feel like people are more desperate. People are more on edge. Um, people are acting out in all sorts of ways. And I think that's not just a reflection of what happened with the lockdown, but a society that for a long time now seems to just be in a slow but steady decay. Yeah, there, I mean, there's the anger and people on edge, but there's also a big sense of people are just over it. Yeah, <laughs> People don't give a shit people about this country anymore, yeah. about the society anymore. Like, one thing I noticed uh, a lot of places on the trip, not everywhere, but most places maybe, is that um, public transit's now free. Like, oh, people just don't pay for it like anymore? In, like, in some places, like Olympia, it's just free. Um, but in other places, it's, like, de facto free mm. because... Uh, like no one's, you know, checking tickets anymore on the light rail. 
um, or bus drivers just don't give a shit enough anymore to like tell you to pay. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, like I, I ask people whenever I go to the city because I'm a cheapskate. I don't like to pay. Like, how often do they check tickets yeah. here? And most places, people are like they don't anymore. Yeah. And so, you know, like even when I even when I was going on a longer trip and I wanted to pay just so I could like feel comfortable. Um, like sometimes you couldn't cause the machine was broken or something. Yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, the, the, the sanitation department in the city, the, the DSNY took huge hits, uh, from COVID. A lot of, uh, sanitation workers died. A lot of them, um, not a lot, but a, a sizable number refused to get vaxxed and ended up getting fired. And along with the police, and I haven't seen this in firefighting yet, but maybe there's statistics for that. It seems like sanitation workers and sanitation has pulled back. Just go out and look at the streets of our neighborhood. I mean, mm-hmm. two, three years ago, I, I do not remember seeing just trash fucking everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember, like, I was out on the street and somebody threw, like, an entire fucking uh, like garbage bag out the window of their car <laughs> and just, like, shit going everywhere. There's, like, it, it feels like things are breaking down. I don't want to be a fucking alarmist, right? But, like, it feels like, like you said, people don't believe in politics anymore people don't believe in society anymore it feels like it's 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 a very sort of ravenous hungry feeling out there and it's not something that maybe you can measure or even quantify but uh this society is fucked up man it's fucked and it's getting more fucked it feels like yeah nobody's uh particularly optimistic about the society um but you know Again, like we're communists, we have to look at we have to try to look at the silver lining here. You know, delegitimization and mm-hmm. m- widespread discontent can be breeding grounds for like new new types of thinking and new types of action. Sure. Yeah, and like for example, um, uh, uh, Ryan Lee's piece about the the George Floyd uprising in Los Angeles makes like a pretty good case that the ongoing kind of like smash and grab lootings like throughout California have a direct connection to the uprising. And it's a way of saying like, okay, you thought the uprising was all about abolish the police and defund the police and, uh, you know, getting Democrats elected or whatever. This is kind of what it was really about. Like we're just going to take all this nice shit and not pay for it. Um, which is, Another an argument that's made in a, a good essay that I'll I'll post in the show notes called the Interregnum, that theorizes the the Great uh, Resignation and uh, the uprising um, are you know sort of connected that there's like these subterranean unofficial networks of workers who are like helping each other secede hmm. and uh, sabotaging things with various kinds of slowdowns and most people read that as like too optimistic but I think there's something to it where like the, the you know the uh, uh, they they compare uh, they, they say that that uh, there's like termites going through the the baseboard of the system. Interesting. And I you know I think in a way it's true. Like I think the next time there's something like an uprising, we could see like a pretty big collapse. Yeah, yeah. I wonder. I mean, you haven't just seen that. You didn't just see that two summers ago, right? You've also seen that in um, various right wing things like the trucker convoy. Uh, which now in the United States is called the 1776 movement or something like that. And I'm not saying that they're comparable, right? But it seems like across American society and American politics, as uh, the future forecloses itself, people seem like they're more willing to come together and and do sorts of uh, collective actions. I wonder uh, at this late date if... um, 
uh, there's a way to harness this sort of wild, um, you know, social activity that you're talking about happening in Los Angeles. I don't think we should harness the, the trucker convoy, but um, <laughs> uh, harness this this sort of these uh, maybe train these little termites under the floorboard to uh, to attack. Uh, I don't know, maybe the mansions or something like that. I wonder if it's not time um, to start uh, taking seriously, uh, harnessing that sort of stuff. I've been, I don't know if, um, I haven't talked to you in a while, but I've been fucking around with starting a new project. And I think more than fucking around, I've been coming together in my head and and trying to put together something like... um, like some sort of new syndicalism, a red ILO, something like that. Did you listen to the MOOC episode? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, well, I'm starting to get more and more um, impatient waiting for, uh-huh. uh, for, for something to happen and for somebody to do something. So, But I think we, we kind of have to because the idea of our tendency, like going back to Glaberman, CLR James, yeah. that kind of thing, is that it's not like the left is – leading or influencing these things so, you know the, the this is ha- this is proletarian self-activity it's happening for its own reasons mm. it's happening to meet the problems that capitalism is throwing right at it. right so uh people resigning you know as nice as as much as it would be nice to think that it's like this explicit anti-work sentiment inspired by an anarchist subreddit people are doing it for their own reasons yeah sure um and I think the broader reason is the same, which is the delegitimization of work. The question of how am I using my time in this, you know, while I'm alive in this world that seems like it's ending. Yeah. Do I really want to work at the Shoney's? Uh, like <laughs> proudly working at the Shoney's for the yeah. rest of my life. No, I respect I, I out don't. there to the Shoney's workers. We love yeah. you all. And if I, and if I do, if I have to, I'm not going to work very hard and I'll probably be stealing on the job. You know, yeah. that's like, a much, much wider attitude now than I think it's ever been. Oh, for sure, yeah. And so I don't think we need, like, to organize those people or give them some kind of program. I think they know what they're doing, and we just got to figure out how to relate to it. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I I think that there's all sorts of examples of um, uh, proletarian self-activity that you've seen over the last 2 to 12 years or so. I feel like there's where the real opening is is um the thirteen to twenty percent of um people in this country um who um who still work in production you know who are still out there producing value. I feel like there's um there's been attempts uh to work within those milieus before I think that um the antifada because we have a lot of people who work in those industries i think we have uh, a nice opportunity to kind of create the seeds maybe of something that's not going to do the revolution but you know and i think it was in 1850 there were people talking about um uh ally people allying with the democratic forces you know after the revolution and um about how the proletariat had to um come together with them in order to get anything done and mark said i think it was to the league mark said you don't understand the working class has to do this themselves and it might take 15 to 20 years in order to build the sort of discipline necessary in order to actually hold power and to overthrow everything uh we believe that that process in itself can only come from the working class but it's something that we need to as you said understand and be a part of and of course in uh the the paris commune happened 20 years later out of this exact process so i don't think that there's any 
conflict between the idea that, yes, you know, there are these social forces working subterranean, but also that, you know, it, it's going to take some sort of organizing and discipline on our parts in order to ensure that, say, when the next crisis comes, it's not completely borne on the backs of uh, the working class, that, in fact, there is uh, a network, uh, an organization willing to step out and um, start to to propose class solutions and start to build class power. Yeah, I, I think we should definitely organize ourselves for that situation. I totally agree with that. And um, and I think you're right that we have a little bit of a base to do that because traveling around the country, you know, I was doing these speaking gigs and, uh, and bookshop gigs, and I met a lot of listeners to the show, um, a lot of people who, That's who, great. who like our work. And uh, these people are workers. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, I, I mean, when I, when I interact, I mean, online, and, and sometimes I meet people. I met uh, one of our listeners a couple of weeks ago. We went to some dope-ass uh, parties out here. Um, I'm, I'm proud, to be quite honest, uh, what we've built over this last four years or so. Yeah, me too. I, incredible I listenership. Like, really excited to meet. I, I wish I could shout out everyone. Um, maybe I'll, I'll just shout out Vladimir Luton and Otto Poesis yeah. because those, you are, met just, Otto. That's so cool. those are the screen names Otto. that are like most directly in my mind, but I met obviously a lot more people and had great conversations and some people that I wish I could have talked to more, but didn't really at the time. Um, so if I did talk to you, um, just DM me on Twitter or on Patreon or on the discord, just, just so I know who you are. Cause we've got like a working class audience and people tell us that they're inspired by us and what we do and. You know, I'm really inspired by by what you do. And so I want to, you know, I want your voices on the show. I want you to tell us what's going on because we we can read Twitter and we can read theory books. But, you know, I don't know what it's like to to do your job. I wish we could have a goddamn convention or something. (laughs) Pull together the 10 or so thousand people that listen and get them all together and stuff. But in, in lieu of that, I mean, I feel like our podcast is now moving into a new phase. Not like they said with the Queen of England, where she just turned into a hologram for her 70th, for her platinum anniversary of her reign, and is like stuck in a deathbed somewhere. No, I'm thinking maybe we've transformed now into a new thing. It's just you and me. And uh, actually, on that note, um, when we lost Jamie, unfortunately, um, you know, last month, uh, Andy and I thought maybe it would make sense to kind of put our intentions out there and our thoughts out there. So we created something like a a manifesto for Antifada 2.0. So uh, with Andy's permission, maybe we can go back and forth and read this thing and, uh, you know, maybe state our intentions clearly. Yeah, let's do it. Let's close out the episode with... The Antifada Manifesto, and then on our bonus uh, this week, just to plug that really fast, I'll be talking about my trip to uh, Dealey Plaza at the end of it, mm. talking about my my feelings of being in Dealey Plaza, and also there'll be um, audio from uh, my talk with Jared Shanahan in, in Chicago. And uh, while we're plugging, too, I recorded History as a Weapon 14 yesterday, which will be coming out for patrons later this month. So do be sure to sign up if you're not already to get that. Yeah, please do. Patreon.com slash the Antifada. We just lost our rent strike. (laughs) All right. So here is uh, Antifada Manifesto 2.0. Uncle Ted, eat your heart out. (laughs) Industrial civilization and its consequences have been... (laughs) Just kidding. <laughs> if I wrote it, it would be something like that. It would be, yeah. No, be, this is mostly you, so. Uh, but Uncle Ted might be more and more right every day, at least in theory. Anyways, um, <laughs> me, 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 me. All right.
Um, as we embark on a new era for the podcast, the two of us feel like it's a good time to present a statement of intent, a manifesto, if we should be so bold, and a proposal to you, the podcast listener. For several years now, the Antifada has pursued something like a loose research project around the questions of class struggle. We've been criticized for not laying out a 10-point plan for politics or revolution, for refusing to endorse candidates or evading the latest battle in the culture war. Perhaps it's time to lay out our thesis plainly, to clarify some of our positions, and to complicate others. Humanity faces two intertwined crises. On the one hand, the existential threat of climate disaster, and on the other, the economic and social chaos of a mode of production in decline. The social system on which we rely to produce and reproduce humanity has reached self-determined limits, characterized by a rate of profit insufficient to employ and remunerate billions of people. And all the while, capital demands infinite growth on our finite planet. We cannot rely on the innovations of green capitalists to get us out of this mess. The ruling class fiddles while the world burns, and they do this not because they are necessarily evil, though many are, but because of the perverse incentives and social necessity that capital holds over all of us. Our podcast holds a very basic position on this dual crisis. The only force capable of setting the world right, or of carving out a life worth living out of what remains, is the working class. Not out of some aesthetic or moral position, but because of the powerful place our class holds within the capitalist system. The old adage, without our brains and muscles, not a single wheel can turn, holds as true today as a hundred years ago. And yet the left has been at sea for several generations now. And I'm not just talking about the merchant marines. Mm -hmm. Alienated from the social base necessary to even reform, let alone prosecute revolution. The reasons for this are many, and we discuss them regularly on our show, but those who claim to stand for revolutionary change have not done themselves much favor of late. As we see it, or hope it can be, the Antifada is an attempt at a small corrective, away from the failed politics and programs of the 20th century, and towards a critical theory and practice adequate to the 21st. This cannot and will not be about simply finding the correct line or the best organizational form. It certainly will not come from latching on to the bourgeois parties decaying into irrelevance. Our project is predicated on the old notion that the emancipation of the working class is the task of the working class itself, that the social logic of capital generates its own resistance, that these forms of resistance arise historically based on changed and changing conditions, and that the decline of the left signals not merely a defeat at the hands of reaction, but also the birth of new modes of life and struggle that have teared out of the developed core and into a true world system for the very first time. The evidence, from insurrections to populist revolts to wildcat strikes and mysterious mass resignations for this are everywhere, as soon as you look under the surface of everyday events. Our project is dedicated to highlighting these struggles and trying to contextualize them through a critique of political economy. This, we think, is the vital core of Marx's work that remains more relevant than ever. There is so much focus on geopolitics, cultural critique, and electoral politics that simple truths about class and struggle are often overlooked. The harder the economy attempts to shackle our wrists, the more we realize our own strength to break free. This orientation towards struggle, we hope, will help guide us towards building power locally and someday globally. 
we've been proud to pull together a dedicated international listenership that is seeking to grapple with these heady questions alongside of us. Our listeners are carpenters, programmers, truck drivers, retail workers, full-time parents, and part-time teachers. The fact that we get to spend every week with such great and smart people means everything to us. Since April of 2018, we have operated our show with the principle of politics first, considering ourselves something like the Leninist cadres of old, hawking podcasts instead of newspapers in order to sustain our political activity. Thanks to our patrons, this has always been an easy choice, allowing us to make the show that reflects our interests and beliefs. As our show regretfully enters our post-Jamie era, it is our pledge to you, patrons, and free listeners, new and old alike, that the orientation of the line on Patreon's earning page will never determine our content, that our paywall will remain ever porous, and our guiding task will remain the literal abolition of class society. As a wise man once said, it's finished. <laughs>